Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we will be engaging deeply and vastly with the work of Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, the reason why is because his first two names are Martin Luther, right, Dad? That's the main reason we like this guy. Well, it's only a tiny bit of the reason why we like this guy. <laughs> Tell us, Sarah, how I've gotten you interested in him. Oh, well, actually, yeah. first I'm going to tell you how he got his name. Actually, he and his father were both Michael King Sr. and Jr. And when um, Mar- the Jr. was five years old, his father went to Germany for a meeting of the Baptist World Alliance. And while he was there, he saw uh, Luther sites, which impressed him greatly. But he also saw the rise of Nazism, and he immediately cottoned on to the deeply racist aspects of, or, you know, not just aspects, central focus of Nazism on its um, racist theories and was part of a statement against Nazism. But the uh, the um, whole experience had such a profound effect on the senior, who was, uh, of course, also a Baptist pastor, that on his return home, he renamed himself Martin Luther King Sr. and his five-year-old son, Martin Luther King Jr. And um, I, I found made a point of learning this detail at some point because when one travels in Europe, any place that is not a historically Lutheran country, everyone has heard of Martin Luther King, but nobody has heard of Martin Luther. So if you tell them that, say, we're on a pilgrimage in the steps of Martin Luther, they're like, I didn't know he ever came to Italy. Like, no, no, not that one. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> yes that's cute anyway that is the backstory of how the famous man uh got the name of another famous man right and we'll kind of gently probe how it's the case that martin luther king jr in fact stands in the long stream of tradition that emanates from the martin luther of wittenberg 500 years earlier Yes. But go ahead. Tell us uh, how I got you interested in in him and what that means. Well, you know, as I I said um, in our last episode on Howard Thurman, we'd been wanting to do this pair of episodes on these two ever since we dealt with um, Lincoln and Jefferson. Um, And I noted in my reading how much... King himself invokes uh, Lincoln and and Jefferson, usually positively, sometimes with critiques. But um, he he is claiming the promissory note that Jefferson wrote for himself as well, despite Jefferson's notorious status as a slave owner. Um, but you know, I guess growing up for me, so I'm a Generation Xer. Like Martin Luther King is just one of these towering figures, like Lincoln, who is so famous that you don't really need to know anything about him except the fact that he is who he is. And um, I I've, I know that I read a book about King's um, kind of legacy and thought by, oh, what's his name? Claiborne something. Um, One of the leading scholars of King. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. And I must have read some excerpts of King, but I never spent any time seriously engaging with his work until we prepared for this podcast. And uh, here I have to tell you, Dad, I kind of went through three phases of reaction to King. Are you ready? Sure. Far away. Okay. So the first one was I read this um, collection called The Essential Martin Luther King, and uh, I realized now it was much more focused on his political speeches or speeches that are meant to like the whole American public. And there certainly is Christian content in them, but he is not there in preacher mode. He is there in in a public civil figure mode. And um, what I 
so the what I got very positively out of that is I really understood for the first time ever how absolutely essential and central nonviolence was to him. And it wasn't it wasn't just like tactical, but it was a matter of profound spiritual and personal conversion. And um, I, I hope we come back to it because I, I saw in that where personal transformation and structural critique come together. And almost all my life, I've only seen those two things live in entirely different cultures, practically, rather than come together. That was wonderful. But on this, at the same time, going through his political writings, I first of all had um, an alarming feeling of there was a kind of secular dispensationalism going on, how often he invoked the time, this is the hour, the transformation of the whole human race. I mean, not quite age of Aquarius, but it had a very dated 60s feeling to me, a kind of post-millennial rather than pre-millennial fervor that did not sit well with me. But above all, I would have to say by the time I finished, other than the nonviolent stuff, I was like, you know, I've heard this stuff so many times before, and it just, it's spoiled for me. And I mean that in both sense of the word spoiled, that I only know cheap um, approximations or abstractions out of the King legacy for whatever anybody decides to invoke is now is the cause of the hour. So instead of being rooted in in the actual lived experience and history that King is a part of. It was just a free-floating doctrine of revolution or something. So I can't say by the time I got to it in the book, I was really thrilled. But then, Dad, you told me that you had been working on a collection of his sermons called Strength to Love. So I thought maybe that would help. So then I went through and read all of those. And wow, that added like three or four extra dimensions to King that I, at least as a theologian, I really needed to understand and situate him better. And I think we'll spend in this episode most time going through the depth of those theological themes. But knowing, getting to know King as a preacher was absolutely essential for me for putting the political stuff in a framework that was much more appealing and intelligible, but also challenging and powerful to me. But then there was one more thing, <laughs> because uh, as I told you when we were preparing for this, even there, there was kind of a, again, I still had a little bit of the tired liberal Protestant feeling, and that has been much more the world that I have lived in. So I decided to listen to an audiobook narration of James Baldwin's novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And Baldwin is, of course, another great Black American writer, and he is uh, has a similar, um, you know, alive, the same rough age as King was. And um, this is a novel about um, a very, very uh, bitter and dysfunctional family, as one might say, in the midst, uh, at the very heart of a black Pentecostal church um, in the South and in Harlem in, in like a first three, four decades of the 20th century. And uh, I've worked a lot with Pentecostals as part of my ecumenical work, but this was definitely a distinct portrait. And what really comes through came through to me in the book anyway was how poorly served these people were by their by their Pentecostal faith. For all the things that it did do for them, there was so much that it didn't do for them. And above all, it made them responsible for, personally for everything that was wrong in their lives and had no way of dealing with the bitter oppression and humiliation they endured on a daily basis in racist America. And, you know, Baldwin had a very complicated relationship to Christianity. Uh, it's a very um, autobiographical 
novel. And and that was kind of the third piece that made me really get what King was doing and how King, like Thurman, really represent the best of that liberal Protestant culturally and politically engaged form of Christianity um, by seeing seeing the contrast as represented in Baldwin. Wow, you've had quite a personal odyssey in the last <laughs> several weeks, haven't you? <laughs> well, and I think it's so important uh, as we have this conversation, the generational difference between us even more than usual, just because uh, I'm, I'm coming at this all second or third hand. But now I think it's really important for you because you were there in a sense. I don't know if you were there in person, but this is so much more the story of, of your life and passing through time. Like I said, I, I feel like I'm discovering the authentic goods after getting a spoiled version of it, but you tracked with it personally. So tell us more about that, Dad. Well, yeah, thanks, Sarah. The um, Let me begin by noting that I've, I taught an, a course on Martin Luther King at Roanoke College for a number of years, and I wrote about him also in one of my books, Luther and the Beloved Community. Um, and um, uh, so I've spent some time actually working on King um, and, you know, it's interesting that anecdote you tell about the name change, how he got the name Martin Luther from his dad's trip to Germany in the 30s. Uh, a former Missouri Synod Lutheran who taught church history at Duke uh, Theological uh, Faculty uh, in North Carolina, Richard Lisher, has written a really excellent book on called The Preacher King. And... Uh, um, I really recommend that book. It, it, it's, 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 it's quite good analysis of King's preaching. But he, he too, remembering back to the kind of Lutheranism he knew in the Missouri Synod of 50 years ago, where King was regularly pilloried as a secret agent of the Soviet Union's <laughs> Communist Party. You know, and he was hounded by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI yeah, and I know. so forth. And it was really terrible times. But Lisher, you know, couldn't see the connection very well between Martin Luther King Jr. and the 16th century Martin Luther. And I think we'll be able to point that out as we go along today. Anyway, that's a lot of what my, my research on him was later in life. But as a teenager, I was really drawn to King um, as I grasped his appropriation of the Sermon on the Mount, um, love your enemies, do good to them that despitefully abuse you, and for such you will be children of your Father who is in heaven, and so forth. That made a huge impression upon me. Uh, and at those years is when I read the New Testament for myself for the first time. And this means that my encounter with King in the 1960s was a very interesting thing. Now, I grew up in the Missouri Synod too, but on the East Coast in a more liberal version of the Missouri Synod. So King, I was encountering King, it was an encounter with a non-fundamentalist, but nevertheless very Baptist, in today's lingo, evangelical preacher. And so that that's what drew me to him um, in the context of those times. Only later did I learn that he had actually earned a Ph.D. in systematic theology. And that, of course, uh, increased my affection for him. Now, here's the problem, Sarah. What we've just recounted is typical. The contemporary world knows little of what we're talking about. 
this whole side of King has been uh, kind of erased from the public image of King, the icon King, as the, quote, civil rights leader. And I agree with my teacher, Cornel West, that this has been a domestication of the so-called radical King. His life work ended in the middle of his Poor People's Campaign, focused on the basic issue of class, which has, and that's been domesticated into this civil rights icon, limiting him to the horizon of conservative equal opportunity or progressive inclusiveness, when in fact he was an advocate of something much more than civil justice. And in, in the original idiom of that day, which has now become an ambiguous slogan, he was talking about something far deeper, more penetrating than civil justice. He was talking about, and here's the ambiguous slogan that's become social justice. So that, that's what we want, we want to unpack. Yeah, I just want to mention, I, I did read at your suggestion, Cornell West's introduction to his collection, The Radical King, and man, is West pissed off at what has become of black Christianity and black America. And uh, Obama, more than anyone else, comes in for his uh, severe condemnation. But I, I think that is so important to see. And actually, this really helps me with King's, uh, like what I call the dispensationalist or post-millennialist fervor. I mean, there's a way in which when you read King truly as preacher, it is such a disservice to see him only... Uh, let me dare say this, only as a pastor or only as a civil rights leader, he really does speak as one called as a prophet. I mean, he really does sound like an Old Testament prophet. And I think that's why it's hard to integrate or know what to do with him because, you know, how do you live with a Jeremiah or a Hosea? <laughs> you don't really. Um, and yet you you have to attend to the words that they say. And I think that's, that's maybe why I've only felt that my why I've only heard what I call spoiled versions is because that prophetic fervor, I think that's what we need to get to at the end is where do you go from there? But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right, sir. And I think to go back to your comment about apocalyptic and Pentecostalism uh, or the, you know, the, the bromide, the urgency of now picking up on King's, the fierce urgency of now um, statement, you know, but for, for King, uh, you, uh, let me take you back into the 1960s, which witnessed the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, in which we little children crawled under our school desks and kissed our fannies goodbye as we awaited awaited Manhattan to explode in a hydrogen bomb. You know, that was the drills that we actually did when the sirens went off. And then in 1963, JFK was assassinated. And then in 1965, I think it was, was the first race riot, the big race riots in Los Angeles. Uh, the legislation was passed in 64, the civil rights legislation. Uh, but then the war in Vietnam took off and King came uh, into conflict with Lyndon Johnson over the war in Vietnam. And it was very tense times. And then in 67, uh, King was assassinated, and three months later, Robert Kennedy Jr. was assassinated. And all this time, the nuclear arms race just kept accelerating. And so, you know, when you talk about the urgency, the fierce urgency of now, the King was referring to the faith in progress and technology has been shaken. 
the instruments which yesterday were worshipped today contain cosmic death, threatening to plunge us all into the deep abyss of annihilation. Uh, that, that's, I'm quoting King directly. Man is not able to save himself or the world unless he is guided by God's spirit. His newfound scientific power will become a devastating Frankenstein monster that will bring to ashes his earthly life. And that thought of King's, um, that critique of, of the liberal faith in progress and, and uh, led by uh, science and technology, that is ubiquitous in King's oeuvre. Uh, 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 the only comment I can add to that is we still have not learned this lesson. We still think our technology will save us without transformed hearts. Right. Yeah. And so let's just leave it. I just wanted to make the point here that King's apocalyptic mood is rooted in this very pointed critique of the liberal faith in automatic progress led by the, uh, science and technology and pointing out the very simple, it ought to be such a simple insight, that science and technology increase human power, but power can be used for evil as readily as it can be used for good. And that's the dilemma that we have. Great. Well, so I think that historical framework makes all the difference here. But now let's use that to move forward and unpack a number of the theological, the specifically theological themes we find in this preacher king that came out in his civil rights and poor people's advocacy. That's why I asked you to read uh, the 1967 edition of uh, King's little book uh, of sermons, Strength to Love. Uh, he originally published that in 1963, but after his assassination, the Lutheran Publishing House Fortress reissued it, and it has a, a new preface in it uh, by Coretta Scott King, his widow. And, and she wrote in that preface, If there is one book Martin Luther King Jr. has written that people consistently tell me has changed their lives, it is this one, Strength to Love. Let me just add a quick note. Uh, it's been reissued again. It's now called A Gift of Love. It's mostly the same sermons. So if you, if, if listeners out there want to get a current copy, it will now be called A Gift of Love. Okay. And it was originally uh, sermons that he actually preached in his congregations in Montgomery, Alabama, and then later in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, what King himself wrote in the original preface is this, and I'm quoting, in these sermons, I have sought to bring the Christian message to bear on the social evils that cloud our day and the personal witness and discipline required. So using this and others, let's take a look at King's theology. Let's try to appreciate King as a Christian theologian. Sounds good. Take us away. All right. First of all, uh, King had a Ph.D. in systematic theology. And theology for him is the critical thinking of Christianity. It's internal, it's a practice of the Christian faith. It's Christian faith thinking critically, uh, distinguishing between um, appearance and reality, between form and substance and things like that. So uh, peppered throughout these sermons are recommendations of quote, incisive thinking, realistic appraisal, decisive judgment, as opposed to what? As opposed to soft-minded gullibility. <laughs> yeah. 
And then, then he unpacks that. There's an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. <laughs> the soft-minded persons have revised the Beatitudes to read, Blessed are the pure in ignorance, for they shall see God. <laughs> and, you know, so he was caustic about this. And then he concludes, never must the church tire of reminding men that they have a moral responsibility to be intelligent. And then he unpacks that, open-minded, making sound judgment, and a love for truth, to rise above the paralysis of gullibility, right? Yeah, that, I mean, for people like you and me, it's always encouraging when we see Christians uh, exhorted to use their brains as God gave them and not to be afraid of them. And there is, what what is this? Does this go back to Kant, this deep, deep-rooted feeling that as long as you're, like, good-hearted and have goodwill, then you're somehow morally exempt from having to be smart and tough-minded, as he said it? There, There is this kind of, like, you know, a good disposition excuses any amount of stupidity, which, of of course, is simply not true. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't accuse Kant of that particular fault, <laughs> but okay. I would. Uh, it, I think it is much more what developed under Pietism in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, which kind of juxtaposed a theology of the heart over against a theology of the head, and of course. For King, this is a false uh, uh, dualism, as uh, we've discussed in previous podcasts, like about Simeon Zal and so forth and so on. Uh, but, of course, the whole, in some ways, the whole pietist tra- tra- tradition, which is transposed in the United States uh, through Wesleyanism um, and some of the more popular frontier forms of Methodism, uh, very much says doctrine divides, feelings and action unite, you know, that kind of thing. So don't you don't have to think about beliefs. It's all about relationships. That's the current jargon we have for this kind of mindless um, um, uh, um, refusal of theology as the critical thinking of Christianity. Yeah, though I, I know one of the essays or sermons of his that I read also cautioned that intelligence alone will not save us if we are spiritually blind. So he also recognized there was yet a third dimension to this and that people can use both their apparent goodwill and their apparent good brains for spiritually evil purposes. And there is like a transcendental presence of the spirit or breaking in of the spirit that is necessary to make both heart and head serve the truly good. Amen. Yes, I think that's exactly right. He had a holistic anthropology. He didn't have any kind of body-soul dualism. He called for the integration of body and soul, as we'll see, as we'll see as we move along here. Um, uh, I find, Sarah, and maybe you can comment on this, I find that de facto he has a proper distinction of law and gospel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you you definitely see that. He talks about the about God himself being both tough-minded and tender-hearted. I think we could call that the law side and the gospel side. Uh, but you see throughout also his his 
exhortations to people are always both to, you know, rise up and undertake the necessary discipline of your your sinful and self-indulgent and cowardly self. Um, hear, hear and heed the law of God to treat your neighbor as truly a neighbor. But at the same time, uh, actually, one thing that struck me very deeply about his writings is how much he tells, especially his fellow black Americans, you are beloved, you are God's children, you are made in the image of God, you are worthy, you have dignity. So all of the the, the summons of the law to engage in this prophetic action of nonviolence is rooted, first of all, in the declarative gospel of their their full humanity. I think in, in the context he's working in the, the gospel of the first article of creation, of belonging, of being children of God and in the image of God has kind of a more, actually a more... Um, more texture and challenge than, um, as shocking as this might sound, uh, than the second article of Christ's sacrifice for sin. I think uh, if Baldwin's novel is anything to go by, the sacrifice for sin part was already exceedingly obvious to the black faithful. What was not so exceedingly obvious was their belovedness. And so that is the gospel he brings to bear most powerfully. And it's only out of that that the, the, the call, call of the law to rise up is applied to them. Yeah, our f- mutual friend, Robert Benny, um, um, in Chicago days, actually met with Martin Luther King Jr. and participated in some of his demonstrations in Chicago. And uh, when I asked him to reminisce about this, I said, asked him, what personally do you remember about King? Um, and he said, the dignity. Ah, wow. The dignity of the man. You know, and I think you can get a glimpse of that sometimes in interviews with him and things like that. Um, Yes, I think you're right that that the creation faith, that you are created in the image of God for likeness to God, uh, was very important to King. Um, And the gospel of redemption for King, again, it's not dualistic. It's the redemption of the creation. Right, right, right. And that's how he can integrate the two first two articles of the creed so so effortlessly. But just finishing up on law gospel, here's another quote uh, from King. God has two outstretched arms. On the one hand, God is a God of justice who punished Israel for her wayward deeds. And on the other hand, he is a forgiving father whose heart was filled with unalterable joy when the prodigal returned home. So I think that, you know, is that kind of dialectic of judgment and mercy of law and gospel is there at the heart of King's preaching. Agreed. Very much so. Now, here's something that I, as a Lutheran theologian working on the doctrine of God, was just delighted to to read. Uh, he affirmed ontologically in respect to what the very being or nature of the divine is. God is, and I'm emphasizing the word is, God is love. And here's a quote. He's neither Aristotle's unmoved mover, self-knowing but not other-loving, nor is God helpless before the surging powers of evil. God is neither hard-hearted nor soft-minded, he is tough-minded enough to transcend the world. He is tender-hearted enough to live in it. And then here's, here's where the gospel of redemption 
really hits home to his congregation. God does not leave us alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us and for us in our tragic prodigality. Yeah, I think that's just super. Mm -hmm. Yes, Noah, Noah, doctrine of simplicity for him there, eh? Well, yeah, no strong doctrine of simplicity that would turn God into an apathetic other, you know. Okay, let's go on. And how does he build on law and gospel, Sarah? Well, we see a very distinctive two kingdoms doctrine at work in, in King as well. And here's a direct quote. Every true Christian is a citizen of two worlds, the world of time and the world of eternity. We are paradoxically in the world and yet not of the worlds. We are the colony of heaven. Each of us lives in two realms, the internal and the external. Um, and so forth and so on. And so he talks, therefore, about the um, about the need to, uh, uh, to use the word that you already said, uh, to be holistic, to be anthropologically holistic about our life as Christians, that to not only live in heaven, but also to address the fact that if a man and his family are starving, then that is a problem for a Christian, for every Christian to attend to. And that's, uh, but at the same time, the idea that purely solving the economic problem solves the whole problem fails to recognize that we are more than than uh, bellies that need to be fed, but we also do need dignity, as you said, and um, community and a relationship to God and all these other things. And uh, to which seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That was very important for him. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, it's not just that King articulates this citizenship in two realms uh, theology, which is descended from Luther's theology. Um, He also um, thinks that knowledge of this double relation to God and to the creation, ignorance of that double relation is folly. And that's, I think, this really struck me because he had a sermon on the words from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And um, this this ignorance, this foolish ignorance uh, of the persecutors of Christ is a theme that King developed in the sermon. Uh, but he also backs up to the parable of the rich man. And he asks, how was the rich man a fool? And he answers, and I think this is really powerful, because he failed to realize his dependence on others. His soliloquy contains approximately 60 words, yet I and mine occur 12 times. He had lost the capacity to say we and our. A victim of the cancerous disease of egotism, he failed to realize that wealth always comes as a result of the commonwealth, that he was heir of a vast treasury of ideas and labor to which both the living and the dead had contributed. When an individual or a nation overlooks this interdependence, we find a tragic foolishness. Wow, I think that's, that's, really, that's really powerful. That's, that's kind of a doctrine of, of perichoresis at the heart of the creation theology itself. And that leads to his famous, uh, often quoted idea, all are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, right? 
Yeah, I, I to to build on that. Um, one uh, he when he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which uh, is clearly a, a a piece used again and again. Uh, I thought this was wonderful. He says, the first question that the Levite asked was, "If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me?" But when the Good Samaritan came by, he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Wow. Boom. I mean, that that is the most wonderful, brilliant summation of the effect of that parable that I've ever read. And, and it is exactly the, the letters, the Samaritan's recognition of being in this web of mutuality that he could not just look out for number one, but he had to say, what will happen to this man if I don't help him? And also took very much his own personal responsibility for it. Um, but I think, again, this is to, to connect back to the um, the two kingdoms thesis here, too. I think this is really important for bringing together both this political and preacher side of King, there's a, a quote that I know that um, yeah, I've heard you, you say many times from him, which is that the law can't make me love you, um, or the, sorry, the law can't make you love me, but the law can prevent you from lynching me. And, um, and that is also, I think, a really important distinction that there do have to be legal bindings on people's cruelty and evil, and there have to be legal effects when people break that kind of law. You do need those laws in place, and getting there, getting Jim Crow overturned was absolutely essential. But he in no way thought that that was that was adequate, but he also didn't think the law could finally solve the problem of a loveless heart. And um, I, I suppose if any, uh, I have alarms at how his legacy is used now is there there seems to be a deep belief in in bureaucratic legislation that can solve the problem of the human heart which um, is not only foolish it is positively dangerous but if you don't have a living preacher king to call hearts to transformation then you probably are going to start resorting to law and bureaucracy to try to force it on people and so i think that that dialectic in king as well as in his version of the two kingdoms doctrine is absolutely essential. Right. And that leads to his, you know, the other, uh, we, we just talked about folly. He talks about the folly of not recognizing human interdependence, both through the generations and across the globe through time and space. But he, now he turns attention in this context to the other pole of the two kingdoms doctrine and not to know the relationship to God is spiritual blindness. He talks about spiritual blindness. Uh, he says the rich fool failed to realize his dependence on God. He had an unconscious feeling that he was the creator, not a creature. Uh, that's really powerful. That's like Luther. Um, man does not want, a man wants to be God and does not want God to be God. Uh, right? And that's the heart of uh, hubris, of the, the sin of pride, superbia. And then, you know, at the end of that sermon, he really uh, packs a powerful question when he says, may it not be that the certain rich man is Western civilization, <laughs> contemporary Western civilization, which for the last several hundred years has lived on the myth of progress through science, which you already heard is crit criticism of that. He takes it back to the era of colonialism and the slave trade. And he talks about spiritual blindness of those who knew not what they were doing because of their um, uh, uh, blindness to, go, 
to God as our common creator. Yeah, let me read this passage because I think this is really, it's important to hear the whole thing that he has to say. Good. Yeah, so the second part of Jesus' prayer on Calvary is about spiritual blindness, which I referred to earlier, of those who knew not what they were doing. Slavery in America was perpetuated not merely by human badness, but also by human blindness. Men convinced themselves that a system that was so economically profitable must be morally justifiable. They formulated elaborate theories of racial superiority. Their rationalizations clothed obvious wrongs in the beautiful garments of righteousness. This tragic attempt to give moral sanction to an economically profitable system gave birth to the doctrine of white supremacy. Religion and the Bible were cited to crystallize the status quo. Science was commandeered to prove the biological inferiority of the Negro. So men conveniently twisted the insights of religion, science, and philosophy to give sanction to the doctrine of white supremacy. Soon this idea was embedded in every textbook and preached practically in every pulpit. It became a structured part of the culture. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think it's so important to notice that he 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 condemns all of it. It's not just religion. Like I, I still often hear people say, you know, how Christianity was so easily um, wrangled into the service of white supremacy and condoning slavery, but so was science and so was technology and so was economy and absolutely everything. And uh, dad, if I have to say, if there's anything that jars and disturbs me deeply is that as passionate and educator as King was and an educated man, he also saw all too clearly that sorry, education does not solve every problem. And if you are spiritually blind, then your education will only serve your spiritual blindness. But then if all we can do is one set of people saying you're blind and the other people saying back, no, you're blind, then where are we? I think that that is, well, I think we'll get back to this at the end, but that is the uncanny alarm that his insights leave me with. Yeah, and he, you know, King in this context is absolutely scathing uh, with regard to how mainline Protestant preachers are oblivious to the spiritual blindness. Uh, Listen, this is scathing. Listen to this. Um, The popular clergyman preaches soothing sermons on how to be happy or how to relax. Some have even tempted to revise Jesus' command to read, Go ye into all the world, keep your blood pressure down, and lo, I will make you a well-adjusted personality. (laughs) End quote. How, 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 the more things change, the more they remain the same, right? (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, then you really do have to like step back in your, your critique and say, what is it that is making sure everyone's blood pressure is high and they're maladjusted so that they can't actually make any difference in the world? Uh, Harkening back to our episode on BS jobs. Right. And, you know, he, of course, was pointing out how Christianity uh, has been discrediting itself through this spiritual blindness. The the one institution that supposedly attends to uh, a genuine relationship with our Creator and Redeemer had been reduced to cheerleading uh, for middle-class comfort and convenience, uh, psychologically and socially. Um, and he argues, you know, that that we have to be not individualists, but we have to be 
following Christ, the world's most dedicated nonconformist, right? That, that's what he argues. You have to have the courage, the spiritual courage, to challenge uh, contemporary culture on both poles of the two kingdoms' uh, doctrine, on the, on the worldly pole uh, to challenge our, our, um, uh, 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 to challenge, make the challenge of our interdependence with one another through time and space, and on the vertical uh, pole, the relationship to God, uh, to challenge the, uh, us with a, uh, an uncomfortable uh, God who um, judges us for our complicity with structures of malice and injustice. One thing I learned from reading this that I, I hadn't grasped before. So, like, of course, we all know about the marches, right? And and the bus boycott and, you know, walking to work or carpooling and all these these cool and impressive things they did to, to break the Jim Crow system. What I did not know is how deep and extensive was the spiritual training and discipline that he asked of the people who participated in these protests with him. And he, you know, really spoke deeply to the soul of everyone involved and said, are you really prepared to love your neighbor? Are you really prepared to do what it takes to love the white oppressor who sneers at you and treats you as inferior in order to defeat him with love, not with violence, to make him a friend of yours, to meet them on equal levels? Are you prepared not to hit back? Can you really stand up when the police come after you with the clubs or worse and be dragged off to jail or physically harmed without harming them back? I mean, it was an incredible amount of of deep spiritual discipline and commitment that he asked of people. And again, that is a dimension that you don't get when you only see him as a as again, like the the nice civil rights leader, or um, looking only for legislative alterations. No, he was really asking people's very souls to be transformed. You know, and a, a more recent uh, a continuation of that message was from the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, right. After that racist kid uh, sat in on a Bible study and then pulled out his pistol and murdered, what was it? I don't even remember how many people, eight or nine people, including the pastor. And then in the aftermath of that, the survivors confronted him and said, I forgive you. I forgive you just like the Mennonites did in, or Amish did in southern Pennsylvania to the murderer of their schoolchildren. You know, the, the king's call to discipleship in this concrete way has lived on in these several instances. Um, but I think you're right. Um, for King, the call to discipleship took this concrete form of training in nonviolence, uh, practically in Paul's statement, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah, and I think the the really important point here for us is that that looks shallow or religious or heavenly minded from the outside. You know, like, how can you just say, I forgive you after what that guy did? He shouldn't be forgiven and he should be punished. But they're talking on a, a really a different plane of reality. And I think King's deep intuition was that when when 
religion and intellectual life and education and science and tech all fail due to spiritual blindness. The only thing that can alter the blindness is this radical act of nonviolent love. That is, I, I think he believed that was the only hope we finally had. But that is such a a tall order for people who are also themselves sinners struggling with their own blindness, that it really took this entire communal effort and discipline in order to even have a hope of breaking through the blindness with that kind of love. And it, that leads to the next topic that I'd like us to talk about in King's theology, the need for a new birth. And let me introduce that with a little anecdote. Um, one of the last uh, times I participated at the in the January observance of King's of the King holiday at Rono College I spoke on these themes in King's theology King as a radical Christian and uh, when I got through making this point about loving your enemies uh, a, a very skeptical student posed the question to me does that mean loving the proud boys and I spontaneously replied, I don't think that's easy. In fact, I think it's humanly inconceivable. In fact, I think it's something of a miracle that you would actually love your enemy. Uh, and in this particular case, lo love um, the Proud Boys, <clears throat> which would be the contemporary equivalent of Bull Connor uh, unleashing the police dogs on the uh, uh, protesters in Selma, Alabama, uh, something I witnessed on television as a child. So I think let's talk next about this. Uh, where do we get the, the spiritual resources uh, to this, this ministry uh, of, of, enemy of enemy love? Where do we get that? King talks about the new birth this way. He calls Jesus the practical realist Jesus realized that every genuine expression of love, and of course that means love of enemies, now this is what I think is quite stunning, grows out of a consistent and total surrender to God. So the new birth is the death of the, of the rich fool who thinks that he's um, um, independent of all others and independent from God, and instead surrenders that identity uh, completely to God. So, and he continues, something much must touch the heart and souls of people so that they will come together spiritually, because it is now natural and right for them to bring an end to fears, prejudice, pride, and irrationality. These are the barriers, he says, to a truly integrated society. These dark and demonic responses will be removed only as people are possessed by the invisible inner law, which etches on their hearts the conviction that we are all brothers and that love is our humanity's most potent weapon for personal and social transformation. So, uh, the Baptist preacher as his own, as it were, updated and outward-looking doctrine of the new birth. So I think we could say then that the love-based, nonviolent protest 
is a way of creating conditions for other people to be born again, to have the new birth of love by presenting them with truth that cannot be ignored, um, bringing out into the open what has been kept in the dark, but at the same time doing it in a way that says, I am not here to hurt you, to destroy you, to humiliate you, even though you've tried to do all those things to me. I am here to insist that you face the truth, but the truth in love and with the hope that that would bring about the new birth of others. So that I think that is like, for him, that's in a sense, the doctrine of the church that can can be writ large into the civic transformation of America. Absolutely, because there, of course, the, the object of redemption is always God's creation. It's not just the redemption of the church as an island uh, being extracted out of the world, but it's it's the invasion of, of God's uh, grace into a, a creation groaning under structures of malice and injustice. But of course, you know, here in his own lifetime, King experienced really sharp objections to this line. You know, I probably mentioned it in the past that the Black Power Movement um, thought it was ridiculous what King was saying. And someone like Stokely Carmichael famously said, Dr. King, why do we have to be more moral than the white folks? You know, and but he also heard this objection right from his own household, from a child saying, Daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? And so, sir, go ahead and talk about how the newborn child of God does not expect uh, roses uh, uh, and uh, perfume, but expects to, to bear the cross of Jesus, uh, to be a cross-bearer. I think this is where we, we really see King's second article of the Creed theology come through. And, you know, as I, my first time through reading this, uh, especially in the, the first book I mentioned, I was seeing Jesus only as example. And, you know, Luther famously says, first you must receive Jesus as a gift before you can receive him as an example. But I think the proper way to look at it is because for him, the first article, you are beloved, you are made in God's image, is the the breakthrough um, gift of the gospel. Um, it's then uh, in that new identity that um, Jesus becomes the full and truly human, and uh, including in his role as a the world's most consistent nonconformist. And then that example becomes extraordinarily powerful. And not only as example, I think for King there is a sense of of the presence of Christ and the empowerment of Christ to be that cross bearer, to indeed be more moral than one's enemies, to face the worst that they deal out to you with the intention of their redemption. And, you know, this This is, I mean, again, unless the a new birth has taken place, it is foolish to try to be more moral than your oppressors. But if you are, are genuinely working out of this Christian passion and Jesus' passion for enemies and for sinners, then in fact, taking up Jesus' cross is participating in his redemptive work in a powerful way. And again, for him, you know, that it is the leap, as you said, out of the church into the world, not leaving the church behind. I was, you know, I have to say, I was amazed by how deeply King believed in America. Um, 
I've gotten more of a believer in America or in the American ideal or dream or what it represents for all the years that I've lived outside of it. I think that's driven home to me what a precious experiment America is. But I was frankly surprised at how deeply King believed in America and called on America to be its best, um, and perhaps to a degree that I found a little bit uncomfortable and yet was uh, moved and inspired by at the same time. Right. I had the same experience after my years in Central Europe in the 90s, um, coming back to the United States. Of course, that makes the contemporary state of the American soul particularly distressing for me. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast on King, to try to uh, um, properly retrieve a kind of critical love uh, for the American idea and its continuing possibilities. Um, um, anyway, I think that what you were saying there about following Christ in cross-bearing is for King, actually it is rooted in a kind of remarkable faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, here, here's something else from one of his sermons that I think uh, uh, teaches us that. King says, every time I look at the cross, I am reminded of the greatness of God and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. I am reminded of the beauty of sacrificial love and the majesty of unswerving devotion to truth. It causes me to say with John Boring, in the cross of Christ I glory. As I behold the uplifted cross, I am reminded not only of the unlimited power of God, but also of the sordid weakness of man. And here's for King the heart of the love of Christ manifest at the cross. It's really based upon the Gospel of Luke. Precisely then, namely in agony and in ignominy, Jesus did not pray, Father, get even with them, or Father, let loose the mighty thunderbolts of righteous wrath and destroy them, or Father, open the floodgates of justice and permit the staggering avalanche, avalanche of retribution to pour upon them. No. Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye-for-an-eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, he responded with aggressive love. Now, I suppose if we theorized about this and tried to come up with a model of atonement in King, it would sound rather Abelardian. Um, but, uh, you know, that Jesus is, uh, even in his uh, death and suffering, primarily an example or a model of this kind of aggressive love that he just talked about. Uh, but I think what, what, um, what bends it in a deeper direction is King's sharp awareness that this agape love is directed at people we do not like, directed at people who hate us, directed at our enemies. And that is uh, something that's more than simply an example uh, of love. It's a power to love. It's strength to love. So I would say that uh, King uh, uh, didn't work theoretically on the doctrine of the atonement, 
But he very well knew that agape love is militant. It's a militant grace. It expresses God's conflict with human evil. And he knew evil was real, stark, grim, and colossally real. Yeah, and you see in in many of his sermons, he, he does expand also on what faith is. Faith is in this Christ and what kind of hope that gives and what kind of love that enables. Um, so I, I think what we see here is, um, again, coming out of the, you know, um, background, the kind of atonement theories that are, were probably more common in, in black churches at the time to um, not to denigrate or deny the uh, redemptive suffering on behalf of and that Christ represents, but to again say it matters who the Christ was, that it was this radically loving of enemies, nonconformist Jesus who suffered violence without dishing out violence in turn. And that is the source of the power for faith, hope, and love in the ongoing battle against evil in this world. I guess now as we... um. We wrap up. I would like to go over from his essay, Pilgrimage to Nonviolence, which was published in 1960. Look at his own account of his theological development, because this really helped me. Again, Dad, I I told you uh, beforehand when I read the first book of his essays, I was like, well, you know, I... Uh, it's the best of liberal Protestantism, but, you know, that just has so been so spoiled for me. But then when I read his own account of his development, I, I realized that there was there's a lot more going on here. So um, I just would like to breeze through this. That's OK. Yeah, far away. Okay, so um, he talks about how early on he was a, a thoroughgoing liberal um, in in this specific liberal Protestant sense because it was intellectually satisfying and fundamentalism had not been. So I don't know the details of his, his childhood church or community, but clearly fundamentalism was kind of the fallback position. And um, so he said this was so helpful for getting him out of that. Uh, he said, I... He said, I almost fell into the trap of accepting uncritically everything that came under its name. I was absolutely convinced of the natural goodness of man and the natural power of human reason. Um, And this is interesting, too, because in another place I read how he said that basically until he got active in the civil rights movement, he'd had a pretty easy life. He came from a good family, an intact community. He didn't he always hated segregation, um, but he personally did not suffer all that much. And it was stepping out on behalf of his of his uh, fellow blacks that put him in the path of danger for the first time. So you can see how, uh, you know, early in his education, it would be easy uh, even for him to believe in humanity's natural goodness. And he says he will continue always to uh, to cherish liberalism's insistence on an open and analytical mind, its refusal to abandon the best light of reason, um, and so forth. But it was mainly the liberal doctrine of man that I began to question. The more I observed the tragedies of history and man's shameful inclination to choose the low road, that more I came to see the depths and strength of sin. And then he says Reinhold Niebuhr was exceedingly important for him, also helping him recognize the difference between moral man and immoral society, which was one of Niebuhr's important contributions. Um, And he, he concludes, reason devoid of the purifying power of faith can never free itself from distortions and rationalization. There is another point of connection with his namesake, Martin Luther, who understood that reason is a tremendous gift, except it will sell itself out to the highest bidder. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. He goes on then to say that neo-orthodoxy, which would be the kind of Niebuhr and Bart camp, was too pessimistic and and was too focused on the transcendent and holy other nature of God. And again, I think it's so important to locate King and his community and his struggle. You need a very present God who is not distant and holy other um, or and and only critiquing uh, your personal sin or even your society sin. You actually need living power from this God to face up to evil. And he felt that neo-orthodoxy was could not give him that. And he also felt it was a little bit retracting towards an anti-rationalism and a semi-fundamentalism. Let me comment on that. Because by the time of King's education, uh, none of Karl Barth's church dogmatics had been translated into English. And the only uh, Karl Barth he knew was the Epistle to the Romans. Um, And so that's where he's getting his kind of uh, rejection of neo-Orthodoxy and things associated with that. and he doesn't, Niebuhr himself made the similar criticisms of the early Bart. So it, I just wanted to be a little bit more specific here. Um, King um, was rejecting the uh, uh, Bart um, of the Epistle to the Romans for whom there is a only one tangential point where eternity touches time, and that is the cross of Christ and that leaves behind it like a crater, like a, from a bomb exploding in World War I. And, of course, that, that holy other God, utterly transcendent, of course, is something that Bart, in his mature theology, was always overcoming. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's really helpful. Well, then, so King says what actually um, brought everything together from him was... Paul Tillich, which means, Dad, you this year you're finally going to talk me into reading Tillich. Let me just say again here, I have only witnessed the spoiled leftovers of Tillich and what it has done to people in my world. So I have never wanted to read him, and I have never lived in a fundamentalist context, and I know that Tillich is very helpful for people coming out of that. But King said that his existentialism really helped him integrate things that were not integrated for him, and um, to understand the precarious state of existence and and what it means to, to, to be in time. And um, so anyway, he goes on to talk from there about the importance of uh, Rauschenbusch and uh, social gospel, though he felt, again, that Rauschenbusch was uh, tended to over-identify one particular political or economic system with the kingdom of God. And um, I have to say for myself, when King goes beyond... Um, civil rights and transformation and nonviolence into more specific policy proposals for economy, uh, then I'm, I'm a little less sold on him. But I think it would be easy to be distracted and think that was the point. That clearly was not the point. It was an, an effort to find solutions. Um, and and then finally, the, the, the long outcome of his pilgrimage, King said, is this movement towards nonviolence and that that was what kind of drew up all these disparate pieces for him together. And then I want to read his conclusion here, um, what the what the impact of nonviolence was for him coming with this, you know, theological background. He says, in recent months, I have also become more and more convinced of the reality of a personal God 
True, I have always believed in the personality of God, but in past years, the idea of a personal God was little more than a metaphysical category, which I found theologically and philosophically satisfying. Now, it is a living reality that has been validated in the experiences of everyday life. Perhaps the suffering, frustration, and agonizing moments, which I have had to undergo occasionally as a result of my involvement in a difficult struggle, have drawn me closer to God. Whatever the cause, God has been profoundly real to me in recent months. In the midst of outer dangers, I have felt an inner calm and known resources of strength that only God could give. In many instances, I have felt the power of God transforming the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope. I am convinced that the universe is under the control of a loving purpose and that in the struggle for righteousness, man has cosmic companionship. Behind the harsh appearances of the world, there is a benign power. Yeah, that's a personal confession of faith. And he also tells in that context his kitchen experience in Montgomery, where where he almost felt like he had a direct uh, encounter uh, with the Lord Jesus who said to him, Martin, stand up for truth, stand up for justice, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So he had his own um, Damascus Road experience, as it were, in that respect. Um, uh, That's beautiful, Sarah, that uh, confession of faith that he makes at the end of this book. I would just like to sew things up here a little bit by talking again about his relationship to the Lutheran theological tradition. You just mentioned Paul Tillich. And one of the things he, uh, existentialism is a little too vague, uh, I think, uh, and even though King uses that term, what he specifically says that he learned from Tillich was the idea of finite freedom. In other words, that human freedom is always located in the web of destiny, uh, that in all the complex powers and forces that determine us. Uh, I'm born without a choice. I'm born male or female. I'm born into a particular class, a particular gender, a particular society, a particular tradition, a particular religion. All these forces determine me and uh, shape the, the trajectory of my life. And so my freedom is never a freedom to step out of that, but only to step within it, to to, um, negotiate within the the bond, if I can put it this way, within the bondage of the will to our actual finite circumstances. So I think that's a point of connection. And secondly, I just want to touch briefly upon King's doctrine of justification by faith. This too comes from the sermons, and I think it also shows that while this reflection on this was not an obsession like it is for you and me as Lutheran theologians, um, he understood the doctrine and he was able to preach it. This is a direct quote. Faith is man's capacity to accept God's willingness through Christ to rescue us from the bondage of sin. In his magnanimous love, God freely offers to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our humble and open-hearted acceptance is faith, so by faith we are saved. Men filled with God and God operating through man bring unbelievable changes in our individual, 
and social lives. Thus, one cannot remove an evil habit by mere resolution, nor by simply calling on God to do the job. But only, here again is this language of surrender, but only as one surrenders oneself and becomes an instrument of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new person. His old self is gone, and he becomes a divinely transformed son of God. Um, so again, the correlation of faith with the new birth um, that we've talked about in past episodes. And then he, uh, of course, the objection of cross-bearing, of suffering for righteousness' sake, of taking it on the chin from enemies and persecutors. Uh, he writes this about Christian hope. God through Christ has taken the sting of death by freeing us from its dominion. Our earthly life is a prelude to a glorious new awakening, and death is an open door that leads us to eternal life. Okay, so... So I said I wanted to get at the end to the retrieval of King for now in a non-spoiled form. And so I'm going to come to this question to you, Dad, by way of a painful theological question. So you just talked about King's doctrine of justification. And of course, Lutherans are obsessed with justification. And a common critique of justification-centered Christianities is that they are quietistic or disempowering, um, or they just endure, but they cannot transform the world. And there is... You know, there's there's real historical evidence for that effect. I think it's sometimes overstated. But looking at it from the other side, looking at King as representative of a sanctification-centered Christianity, and let's say also what Baldwin describes in his novel is a sanctification-centered Christianity, uh, you know, part of Baldwin's story is the demand for total holiness that nobody can live up to, which therefore incentivizes everybody to lie about. So much of that novel is about people covering up their terrible sins. And um, I think an implicit critique is that 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 church had no capacity to diagnose the larger situation of racism. But even as I look at at King as a sanctification-centered Christianity, which does diagnose in a very tough-minded way uh, that I appreciate the horrible oppressive situation that Black Americans found themselves in, the fact is there's just King <laughs> and a few others. There are so few saints. There's so little transformation. Even when transformation happens or when the revolution succeeds, you have the day after the revolution problem. Uh, you and I are more familiar with this in the context of Eastern Europe and the, the triumph that finally the evil and oppressive system of communism was overturned. But it's not like it was all perfume and roses the day after the revolution. And there are endemic and terrible problems that follow ever since. So... I don't know what to do with this because I don't want to say do nothing and trust in Jesus. And I also don't want to say, you know, everything is a revolution. Everything is a fight. Um, and unless you are at every moment of your life um, battling it out, you are not a Christian or a bad Christian or, or colluding with the system or whatever. But I, I, I can't help but feel this kind of like, I guess, grief at looking at who King was, the great saint that he was, the great prophet that he was, how important and insightful and beautiful and inspiring he was. And then 
what now? <laughs> like, I mean, things. I, I don't want to say nothing has changed, and I, I'm I'm really bothered when, in, in a kind of um, self-flagellating way, especially white people like to insist that nothing has changed in the past sixty or hundred years. That is simply not true. We can we can be happy for change that have taken place without saying that everything is fine. And at the same time, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Where are all the saints? Why are there so few saints? It, it puts me back in mind of Simeon Zal's observation about mediocre Christianity, which is what Christianity is most of the time. Yeah. And I, yeah, the, the, that's a very, wow. That's a really good question that you've, that you've raised here. Um, I have a number of responses. Uh, first of all, I think that like his Lord Jesus, Martin Luther King was an event Martin Luther King was an event. Uh, there was a unique set of historical circumstances uh, th through the underhanded work of divine providence raised King into the position of leadership. Uh, one of his biographers says that he walked around in a daze wondering why God had seen fit to put me into this position. Um, and he was humbled, humiliated even, uh, by knowing his own faults, knowing his own sinfulness, um, which the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover tried to exploit to blackmail him. Um, so King was a complex figure, and he knew the truth of simul justus et peccator. Let's just leave it at that. But the truth of simul justus et peccator is to sin boldly and all the more boldly believe. Uh, in one's forgiveness and redemption and new agency in Christ. And that's why I call King, like Jesus, his Lord, as an event, as something that's in some ways not calculable. You can't program it. You can't turn it into an institution. It is an event that challenges us, provokes us, inspires us, and things like that, which is, I, for me, the, the, the point of this podcast, so that people would encounter King once again as the evangelical Baptist preacher that he actually was, <laughs> and a rich, also a rich and insightful theological thinker. So that's, that's one kind of response to what you're saying. Um, the other kind of resp response I would make to what you're saying is I could be kind of sarcastic and quote that French uh, liberal Protestant of the 19th century, Alfred Loisy, uh, who quipped, uh, Jesus promised us the kingdom and what we got was the church. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and of course, the church is that vessel which holds in its sacred custody the memory of the event, the memory of the apocalyptic incision which was Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and promise of his coming again. And that event held in the custody of the church found a new expression of itself in the life and death of Martin Luther King Jr. And I think basically that's what happens when the church is actually gathered around the word and sacrament of Christ. I think that ha happens in countless innumerable ways that are often beneath the radar because they happen uh, behind the scenes of public life, whereas something like Jesus and something like King erupted out of the pre-political sphere of family and personal relationships 
and church communities and erupted into the uh, a public event. Mm. I like that. It, it helps me also understand better King's King's calling on this unique moment in history. It sounds authentic to me when he says it. It has not sounded authentic to me a lot of other times I've heard it's invoked. And I guess the the temptation is always to uh, hitch yourself to prophetic power for your own cause. So I think what you're saying is my aversion has been to an engineered and programmatized revolution transformation, but that what we do, um, as I've also learned in the case of something like revival, you can't engineer a revival. But what you can do is, like you said, hold, hold the treasure in custody, be faithful to it, and be ready and open to discern when the eruption happens. You can't make the eruption happen, but when it comes, you can be ready for it. And not all of us will be given to live in a time and a place where such a dramatic eruption takes place. But that doesn't mean that what we're doing is any less consequential from in God's economy, which, as you said, is often invisible. Yes, and if Eberhard Betke had not... Uh recovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison and made a life's task out of publishing his work, Bonhoeffer would have died in obscurity, forgotten among the millions of victims of Hitler's Germany. Um, and his, we know today the story of his heroic uh, testimony in those dark days, but uh, only because one uh, uh, friend and follower, Eberhard Betke, preserved it for us. Okay, well, let us continue to hold the treasure in our safekeeping then, um, both of our Lord and of his servant, Martin Luther King. That was really good. That, that, that did me a world of good these past two, I have to say. Very good. And now we're going to turn in our next podcast to the thing that inspired Howard Thurman, and inspired Martin Luther King, which was namely the 19th century quest for the historical Jesus and the various ways in which they appropriated it, what's good and what's bad about the quest. Okay, well, you stole my outro line, so there it is. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.